All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Genesis before Revelation, the first book of the Bible, chapter 37. There are certainly times in our Christian life where our circumstances can be overwhelming. Those times of trial, trouble, and tribulation. Difficulties that we all endure and go through throughout the course of our life. It is often in those times that we make the error in believing that God is distant from us. That He is no longer with us. Even when we do everything right and things don't work out the way we thought they would. Or as we follow God's will and we find ourselves in precarious places. Each and every step that we take here on this earth, God is with us as believers in Jesus Christ. For He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And today we begin a look at the life of Joseph together. Joseph is one of those individuals that in his pursuit and fulfillment of God's will in his life found himself in places that he never anticipated or expected. Places that would have challenged any one of us to believe that God was with us at that moment. Very difficult, difficult places. And yet in it all, we find that God was perfectly working out His plan in Joseph's life. So we begin looking at the life of Joseph together in Genesis chapter 37, and we pick it up in verse 1. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. And there we were, he says, binding sheaves in the fields. Then behold, my sheave arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed to my sheaves. You can see where this is going. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream, and told it to his brothers, and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father, his brothers, and his father rebuked him 
saying to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. As we look at the life of Joseph, Joseph's life has been summarized by words such as faithfulness, integrity, and forgiveness. In the life of Joseph, we find a great plan unfold. We see great difficulties experienced. We see a great story before us and a great God authoring it all. And throughout it all, God is with him. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us in Romans 15, 4, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of Scripture might have hope. The Old Testament is invaluable to us. It is the history that, of course, the New Covenant is all built upon. It is the progressive revelation of God from the very beginning, of course, then to the time of Jesus, and then into the book of Revelation, of course, the New Testament completely foundationed in the Old Testament. Paul, when writing this, is speaking of the Old Testament. And he says two things about it. Number one, it is incredible for our learning. We can learn a lot from the Old Testament by the successes that they had, but also by the failures in which we're committed. But the second reason Paul said that the Old Testament was so important was to give us hope in our time and need of hope. I believe that the Old Testament gives us the foundation of understanding all of history. And within the Old Testament are individual characters given to us. And as the Spirit of God inspired the Word to be written, He allowed the failures of these individuals to be uh, revealed so that we could learn from them that we could see that we are not the only ones that go through difficult times. That we're not the only ones that feel at times that God is distant from us. That the great heroes of the Old Testament often experienced very difficult times and could have concluded, and some did, that God had abandoned them. But as one writer said, he said, everyone's life has the making of a novel. And the novel of Joseph's life is one that we as Christians can truly learn from. I love what Greg Laurie said about the story of Joseph. He says, it is a story where we see God at work. The hand of God is in every scene ruling and overruling the decisions that people make. And in the end, God builds a hero, saves a family, creates a nation that will in turn be a blessing to the whole world through Jesus Christ. So let us begin in verse 1. And we begin with Jacob, Joseph's father. Now Jacob's a story in and of himself. I would encourage you to read the life of count of Jacob. You can go ahead and do it now, we'll wait. But it's incredible 
to see the various aspects of Jacob. Now, Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, his father Isaac, of course, in the land of Canaan, the land in, in which would be the promised land that they would at, soon in the future, I mean, in the future, I should say, will occupy. And this is the history or genealogy of Jacob. Now, Jacob's a character in and of himself. He was born a twin with his brother Esau. And when Esau was born first, as Jacob was being born, apparently he grabbed the heel of his brother to trip him up. So the word, the name Jacob means heel catcher, supplanter. How would you like to go through life with that, you know? And how Jacob knew to do that when he was being born, I, I, you know, I don't even remember when I was born. They, they tell me I was. But Jacob actually had the you know, fortitude to reach out and to grab his brother's foot. And from there we find that throughout the Old Testament, Genesis tells us very clearly that this heel catcher, this supplanter, this deceiver truly lived up to his name. Later on in life, he would con his brother Esau out of his birthright with a bowl of stew. Later, he would go and he would con his father into blessing him with the birthright. But then he got what was coming to him when he went into a foreign land seeking his wife, his eyes on a beautiful lady named Rachel, willing to work for seven years to her father Laban. And at the end of the seven years, when he was about to get married, he thought he was marrying Rachel when in actuality the father had switched his daughters and he married Leah. Leah means spotted cow. I don't know if we should read into that. If your name's here, Leah, today, I apologize. But then Jacob said, I'll work another seven years for the hand of Rachel, which he did and which Laban gave him. And Leah had two handmaidens, Bilhah and Zilpah, who also became concubines of Jacob. And through them, twelve sons were given and one daughter to Jacob. And from these twelve sons comes the twelve tribes of Israel. We have the unique occasion where Jacob was wrestling with the Lord and prevailed. As he was running from Esau, after Esau had, of course, started to pursue Jacob for the con job that he was uh, subjected to, seeing that his birthright was taken from him in his mind. But one night, the Lord wanted Jacob to stop running and wrestled with him, finally touching his hip, displacing it so Jacob could run no more. And Jacob begged the Lord to bless him, and the Lord blessed him. And now we come to chapter 37. They're in the land of Canaan, and we're introduced to Joseph, who was the second of the youngest of the children. He was Jacob's favorite because he was the first from Rachel, in whom he so desired and saw as his primary and desired wife. At first, she was having trouble conceiving and giving birth. But then the Lord blessed, and Joseph's name 
means the Lord has added to me when Rachel rejoiced over what God had done. And apparently, because of that, and because the firstborn Reuben had forfeited his birthright due to the fact that he uh, slept with one of Jacob's concubines. I love when people tell me that the heroes of the Bible all have come from perfect families. It can't be farther from the truth. And this is certainly an illustration of that. But because Reuben had forfeited his birthright, Jacob now was favoring Joseph and the coat of many colors. Now, how many of you are picturing Donny Osmond at this point? Okay. You know, it's like, it's the same uh, dilemma that we have when it comes to Moses. We think Charlton Heston, you know. But this coat was to symbolize to all of the brothers that he truly was Jacob's favorite. And that it would be him who would obtain the birthright. So if you've grown up in a large family where the father or mother is playing favorites, Jacob was the favorite of his mom over Esau, and now Jacob favorites Joseph over the other boys. You know that favoritism can always be incredibly divisive in a family. Jealousy, envy, bitterness all arise because of the favoritism shown. And that's exactly what has occurred here. And so notice with me in verse 2, and this is the history or the genealogy of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. We don't know what they did in the field, but we do know that they were a, a rough bunch of guys. Earlier on in the book of Genesis, their sister was raped in their travels. And when the brothers found out about it, they did what any loving brother would do. They killed the rapist. They were a tough group of people. And apparently something now had happened, and Joseph, being the man that he was, went back and told dad. Now, either they had done something really awful, or Joseph was simply a tattletale, you know? And as a result, now the animosity from the brothers towards Joseph was growing ever so intense. In verse 3, now Israel, of course another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his sons. Well, it tells us right there. Because he was the son of his old age. Meaning that God had given Joseph to him later. He gave, it to, gave Joseph to him through Rachel. And therefore he made, or also he made him, a tunic of many colors. And the word tunic there is just that, a, a, a coat. Uh, down to the wrists of the individual, down to the ankles of the individual. It was meant to show prominence. It was meant to show prestige. It was meant to show favoritism. But when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And could not speak peaceably to him. They couldn't even look at him. He was sitting at the dinner table. They wanted nothing to do with him. 
They couldn't talk kindly to him because the anger and the animosity grew in their hearts so tremendously towards him. And it'll play out in our story next week. But they hated their brother because of the favoritism shown to him. Now Joseph, verse 5, had a dream. And he told it to his brothers. Now, you just have to wonder, Joseph, what are you thinking? You know, maybe you should keep this to yourself. Maybe you should think a little bit before throwing gasoline on the fire. And of course, it was a dream that again infuriated the brothers. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. They were seething now at this time. So he said to them, please hear this dream, which I have dreamed. Now, we don't know if he was sincerely just wanting to know more about the dream in which he had, or if he was trying to rub salt in an open wound. We don't know what Joseph's intention was. But either way, we could tell that this was not a popular choice amongst the family. So, so he said, verse 7, Now there were binding, they were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. Oh, that's good. But notice what happens to the other sheaves. They all bowed down around and, I'm sorry, they all stood up around and bowed down to my sheaves. This guy's just asking for it, okay? You know, my, my dad, he was one of 11, and when we went over to my uncle's house in Chicago, it was one of the safest places you could be, you know? It was, they were cops, they were tough guys, and so forth. And for my dad, who was on the younger end and more academic and a principal, and they were all blue-collar people, uh, for him to say, oh, and by the way, guys, I'm better than all of you, they would have just, oh my goodness, it would have been a family affair, to say the least. But that's exactly what happened here. And his brothers called him out on it in verse 8. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, that is, be our king? Or shall you indeed have dominion, any authority over us? So they hated him. Notice this, even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. Okay, Joseph, you know, you're just doing it to yourself now. And look, I've dreamed another dream, (laughs) Joseph. And this time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Okay. So he told it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him. And said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? (laughs) Yep, that's exactly what's going to happen. The use of dreams in the Old Testament to reveal God's purposes to his people were used often. It was often a a method in which God used to inform his people of what he was about to do 
what he wanted them to do, etc. As Warren Worsby wrote, he said, the Old Testament, you will find a good number of divine communications through dreams, both to believers and to unbelievers. But, he says, this does not seem to be the norm in the New Testament Christianity today. Now, we certainly know that in the Gospels, dreams were used by God, first to inform Joseph of the birth and conception of Jesus. For you know that Jesus, of course, was conceived even before they were together physically and intimately. He was conceived through the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, we read, But while he thought about these things, pondering how this could be that his uh, betrothed uh, wife uh, could possibly be pregnant, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall, con- shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And he did not know her or be physically intimate with her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now later on in Matthew's gospel, once again, God speaks through a dream, but this time to a non-believer, Pilate's wife. And while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, in Matthew 27, 19, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, in in the New Testament, the book of Acts, Peter says something very interesting after the day of Pentecost to explain what had happened there in the upper room biblically and from an Old Testament text. He says to us very clearly that this was a moment that the prophecies of Joel were being fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And that's really the key to what's being said here. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men uh, shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. The old men shall dream dreams, because they nap more. And on my men's servants and on my maiden servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. The whole key to what he is saying there is that the Holy Spirit in the new covenant is coming in a manner of a new economy, where in the Old Testament, individuals were anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that anointing could be, was given to them by God to fulfill a spirit a purpose or a plan that he had for them, a specific task that he had set forth before them. It was also to show the people that God was with them. And this anointing was symbolized by the uh, pouring on of oil upon their head. But in the Old Testament, they also could have the Holy Spirit removed from them. We see that in the case of King Saul. When King Saul disobeyed God, the Spirit was removed from him. 
after David was anointed and then after David sinned with Bathsheba. He prayed and wrote in the Psalms, he says, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because of his disobedience, he too was worried that God would take and remove the Holy Spirit from him because of the sin in which he committed, as Saul committed his sin. Now that's a prayer that we as believers in Jesus Christ do not pray. It's because in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit resides in each and every one of us who has been born again. It is the down payment, it is the guaranteed, uh, guarantee of our salvation. It shows that God has started a new work in us, and in and through the Spirit of God, He will lead us into all truth, but also bring about the fruit, showing that we are being sanctified, taken out of the world, and being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. The work of the Spirit in the life of the believer is a key theological point that we all need to be familiar with. We need to know and to understand. And in that case, we also know that the Bible tells us that not only is the Spirit reside in us as believers, but can also be upon us. We can be filled with the Spirit. Some call that baptized with the Spirit. For the purposes of fulfilling the plan and purpose that God has for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul makes it abundantly clear that through this relationship with the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit are manifested in and through us. And he gives those gifts to each one according to his will. This is what the prophecy of Joel is really leading to. That unlike the Old Testament economy of the Spirit placed upon individuals, every believer in Jesus Christ now has the Holy Spirit residing in us. And may I encourage you to read Ephesians chapter 1, theologically rich, concerning the blessings that Jesus Christ has provided for us that are found in heavenly places and that we draw from today to live out our Christian faith. But when it comes to dreams, dreams certainly can be used by God for communication. However, that appears to be the exception and not the rule. Because we must be aware that dreams can also be manipulated by Satan. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 25 through 28, notice the prophet Jeremiah concerning the false prophets. He says, I have heard what the people have said who prophesy lies in my name, God says. Saying, I have dreamed a dream, I have dreamed a dream. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, who try to make many people forget my name by their dreams which everyone tells his neighbor, as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. The prophets who who has a dream, let him tell a dream, and he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the shaft to the wheat? Meaning, have your dream, but Jeremiah, you have my word. It is the word of God that we should base all of life experience upon. People have asked me over the last two years, uh, very often, how I feel about dreams being given to Christians today. Well, let me first preface it by saying that the word of God is always the first go-to, right? 
And any dream given by, to anyone, if it in any way contradicts, if that dream in any way contradicts the word of God, it is not of God, period. Can you tell I'm adamant about that? Because Jesus, our Lord, said this. In John 14, 25 through 26, he says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. My word is what the Spirit of God will bring to remembrance. In John 16, 12 through 15, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that my Father has are mine. Therefore I said, he will take of mine and declare it to you. I don't think Jesus could be any clearer. The Holy Spirit is here to reinforce the Word of God. The Word spoken by Jesus and the Word inspired by the apostles in the New Testament and Old Testament prophets. Paul said it this way, For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Come on, shout it out. Maybe what? Complete. Complete. What we need is in the Word of God. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's very important that we know and understand that our first and foremost authority is God's Word. Everything must be tested against it and according to it. And if in a dream in any way diverts from the direct teaching of Scripture, that dream should be avoided. Well, Pastor Eric, what do you say about the bastion of knowledge that we find on YouTube? Well, let me tell you. During the last two and a half years, so many have sent me videos that they have seen from various prophets that they have found on YouTube. And I kept saying the same thing. Whatever they say, compare it to Scripture. If it, if it contradicts in any way, dismiss that dream. Well, what happens if it doesn't contradict and it, it's, you know, there's some vagueness to it, and ambiguity to it? Then the second test is that if it is truly of God, it will come to pass. And if it doesn't come to pass, then we dismiss it. And when an individual calls themselves a prophet and they prophesy something that does not come to pass, they don't get a mulligan do-over. I don't listen again to the next one. We need to be discerning Christians. And that discernment comes from the Word of God. Everything, everything that we watch, listen to, everything that we consume that says it is of God, we must say, how does it compare to Scripture? So here's the thing, folks. The only way we can compare these things to Scripture is by knowing Scripture, right? 
is by knowing Scripture. That's the way discernment is created. And that discernment is created when we have the knowledge of the truth and therefore can recognize the falsehood of something based upon its contradictory nature to that in which we know to be true. I've said this example before, but I love it. Pastor Chuck introduced this a long time ago. He said that the Secret Service, when trying to um, you know, find counterfeit bills, discovered that there were so many counterfeit bills in the world today that there is no way that they could have studied all of them to recognize their falsehood. So they came up with the ingenious idea, let's train our officers to study the real dollar bill thoroughly, and therefore when a false one comes across their path, they can identify it immediately. And as a result, see and discern that it is not real. Let us be very careful. There's a lot of people saying a lot of things, especially in times such as this. There are a lot of voices out there. We are inundated with these voices, aren't we? And yet God continuously compels us to listen to the still small voice. And that voice is heard as we read God's word and he speaks to our heart. Knowing it thoroughly will guard our hearts and mind from the deceptions of this world. We must be careful, especially today. There are some denominations, Christian denominations, that pastors feel compelled to talk about their dreams, to communicate them to their congregation. Because in those denominational circles, these dreams that they are having shows a, superior, a spiritual superiority to everybody else. Now, I have dreams all the time. I don't know about you. And often I don't know if they're from God or from the burrito that I ate before I went to bed. I don't recommend that, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> Chipotle at 9 o'clock is not a good idea, especially as you age. And you'll have all kinds of dreams. And you will think Armageddon is coming tomorrow after that, and you realize it was just the hot sauce from the burrito. Can God use dreams? God can do anything God wants to do. But that always should be the exception and not the rule. If he chooses to communicate something in that fashion, here's what I would encourage you to do. Bring it to those elders of the church Talk it with them, talk it over with them, see if it contradicts Scripture in any way if you feel this is of God. And then let's begin to pray that God would show us meaning. Why do I say that? Because of the fact that when Joseph was given this dream, he didn't have its perfect fulfillment, did he? All he saw was them out in a field and sheaves being bound together. His were stand erect, the other ones would bow. Well, you can really place any interpretation upon that that you want. And some of them that I see on uh, YouTube, it's like, I had this dream and the sparrow came and knocked on my window and he put a branch on my window and I'm like, okay, where are we going with this? So what's the interpretation? Well, often the interpretation is found in the fulfillment of it which is exactly what will happen in Joseph's case. But often when these dreams are given, 
today, they're in such ambiguity that any meaning can be drawn from them, and then often are forgotten and not challenged if they do not come to pass. We must be careful. We must be careful. But in verse 11, notice with me, and his brothers envied him. So things were getting bad now. But his father kept the matter in his mind. Even though Jacob's first reaction was to rebuke his son, the word tells us that he began to chew on it. He kept it in in his mind, the back of his mind. Why? Well, Jacob himself had a dream in Genesis chapter 28, and this dream was from God. In verses 10 through 12, now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went to Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head as a pillow. That's what he was using it for. And he lay down in, the, in that place to sleep. And then he dreamed, <clears throat> and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, <clears throat> and, it was, and it reached to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending upon that. And of course, we now know that place to be Bethel the place where Jacob met the Lord. So Jacob is now pondering in his mind, what may this mean? For us today, to reassure ourselves that God is always with us, and the presence of God isn't necessarily something we feel day to day to day. We had this conversations in the young adults group and on Wednesday, and I think it's appropriate to bring it up again today. When we try to define the nature of reality, in the modern era or the Enlightenment era, reality was defined by the five senses that we have. If we could see it, if we could hear it, if we could taste it, if we could touch it, etc. The five senses. However, though, today there is a sixth sense, and I'm not talking about the bad Bruce Willis movie. There's a sixth sense, and like the Lord of the Rings, one ring rules them all. This sixth sense is now the governance of the other five. Reality is no longer solely dictated upon the five, by the five senses, The sixth sense now plays a large role in indicating what is reality. That sixth sense is feelings today. It started with a very short individual in the 1970s when he told Luke Skywalker, Luke, do not, you know, proceed in by sight, but feel Luke. I'm talking of Yoda, of course. I've been asked not to do the Yoda voice anymore. It's one of the few gifts I have. And now feelings dictate to people their reality. But feelings can be incredibly misleading, can't they? Today, people, when they are trying to make a decision, have you often noticed what they'll say concerning one or the other? I just wasn't feeling that one. It's because feelings now have become the compass. 
It has become the source of discernment in a person's life. Unfortunately, feelings are one of the most volatile aspects of a human being. And certainly we cannot discern reality based on the basis of feelings alone because of the fact our feelings change and our feelings interpret things such as as we go through difficult times as a Christian thinking that God is no longer with us, right? That's the way we feel, but is that true? See, God doesn't want our faith to be upon feelings. That's sand in and of itself. Our faith is always on fact, and that fact is the Word of God. No matter what you experience, you have the promise from God that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And one of the things that secures us and assures us of that is knowing just like Joseph that God has a plan and purpose for each and every one of you in your personal lives. Each and every one of you was saved for a purpose. Today, like Joseph, God has a plan. And that plan is His will for your life. And the most secure place that you can be is in His will. Regardless of your circumstances, you can rise above your circumstances if you know that you are in the will of God. The will of God is given to us in two ways. Number one, there's a general will given to us through His Word. There are verses in the New Testament that say, this is the will of God. That is the will of God for each and every one of us, right? None of us are exempt from those verses. Anything God tells us to do is God's will in His Word. Anything He tells us not to do in His Word is His will for us, right? General will for all of us. But there's also a specific will. This is a debated subject today. Many believe we only have a general will that we should concern ourselves with. But God says no very clearly that there's a unique purpose to your salvation. Meaning, He saved you for a reason. And it isn't what you bring to the table. Often people believe that they can simply discern God's will based upon how they were wired and what they want to do. But is that consistent with Scripture? It's not. Remember Moses standing before the burning bush gave God every excuse. I can't talk, Lord. Who am I? I'm 80 now. I want to retire. I just bought a condo in Boca. You know, I want to go play golf on the Holy Land. Lord, you got the wrong guy. Why didn't you tap me on the shoulder when I was 40? Often God in His will takes us above our own personal ability. Why? For His glorification. Because we know it's not us, right? He calls us to something that's way out of our wheelhouse and we say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but you do. And then when it happens, we shouldn't be able to take any credit for it. It wasn't because of me, it was because of him. I love what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9 and 10. For grace you have been saved through faith. We all know this verse. We probably memorized it. Or you have a t-shirt with it on or a salt shaker maybe. Who knows? For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we would say amen to that, right? It's a free gift of faith by grace to us. Okay? Not of works. Now we stop there. 
But in the Greek, the sentence continues to verse 10 and should be formatted that way in your Bible. Why were we saved? Okay, that's how we were saved. But why were we saved? Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, meaning God's working in us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared works for you, good works before the foundations of the world for you to fulfill. For you to fulfill. This is how He saved you, and this is why He saved you. Now, Many then ask the question, well, how do I find God's will? And the question is actually uh, wrong in its, in its perspective. See, I believe that the Bible teaches us that it is not God's will that we must seek after, for it's God's will that is seeking after us. Okay? Now, Joseph, when he went to bed those nights and had those dreams... He didn't say beforehand as he was writing in his diary before he went to bed, Oh Lord, I'm going to have a dream tonight and my sheaves are going to be better than everyone else's sheaves. Okay, Joseph, you can run with that. He didn't know that God was going to tap him on the shoulder at that moment. But often we feel that God hides his will and keeps it from us until we obtain some manner of perfection until we merit its revelation. And yet, I like what again Greg Laurie says. He says, understand this. God does not play hide and seek with His will. He wants to reveal Himself to you. It might come as a surprise to you that God wants to lead you even more than you want to be led. God is concerned about revealing His will to us today. And we need to learn how to discern the will of God. Well, the general will, obviously, is discerned by knowing God's Word. So we can check that box. But what about the specific will? I really find that there are two components that are necessary for us to discover the will of God. I don't think we have to seek it. We can desire it and ask God in prayer to reveal it to us, and I believe He wants to. But the very first thing I believe that we need to do is pray a similar prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden before the night of his crucifixion. Now, of course, we are not taking anywhere near the position that Jesus did, and I don't want to give you that impression. But notice what Jesus said here in Luke twenty-two forty-one to 42. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He went alone and privately prayed. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father... If it is your will, take this cup from me. Meaning, if there's another way to redeem and to atone for the sins of the world, please let this cup pass from my hand. He says, though, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Number one, we must surrender ourselves to the Lord. We must pray, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I think that's how this process begins. We must forego our desires, our will, and give them to the Lord. Surrender all to the Lord. And you need to ask Him often to help us with that surrender. Because it may be things we truly want and desire. They may even be good things that we want and desire that He would maybe want us to have. But then there is the timing. 
of when he would want us to have those. So number one, we must say, not my will, but yours be done. Now, how is that practically manifested in our life? We can say that verbally, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. But there is a manner that we can show it and demonstrate it in our life, and it's found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. When Paul writes at the end of Romans, he says, I beseech you therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. There's the practical application. That we take ourselves and say, not my will, but your will be done. And then demonstrating the authenticity of that prayer by laying ourselves down as a sacrifice before the Lord. Meaning, take all of me, Lord, consume all of me, and use me for your glory. And our sacrifice must be holy, meaning all of us, meaning the totality of our being must be subjected to Him. Acceptable to God, that is, the fact that we have taken the Word of God, we've applied it, we are living in accordance with it. And Paul then says this, very interesting, he says, for this is your reasonable service, for, because of all that God has done for us, this is the only proper way for you to respond to God, by laying yourself a living sacrifice. And then he goes on to tell us, also he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So after we pray that prayer, we demonstrate that prayer by presenting ourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to Him, all of us, in accordance to His Word, which is, of course, a work in progress. It's our only reasonable service. And then we must be careful not to be conformed to this world. We do not need to become like the world to reach the world. That's a sentiment that I hope is now disappearing. We need to be more like Jesus through the power of the Spirit of God. That transformation becomes from the renewing of our mind that we may prove or demonstrate, another good uh, English word for the Greek word there, to demonstrate what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So know this today, like Joseph, God is with us because he saved us with a plan and purpose in mind. Next week, we'll continue looking at chapter, uh, 30, chapter 37 together. So read ahead.